He had never seen a blue sky or green grass or an ocean at sunset. He never looked upon a rainbow or a meadow full of wildflowers or into the face of his parents. He was born blind. Who sinned? The disciples asked Jesus, this man or his parents? Their question reflects a narrow theology, one that says all sickness is a result of personal sin. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. He expands their understanding of sin, sickness, and suffering, and how God operates in this world. Do you need answers for the pain and suffering you're experiencing? Do you need a miracle? Your best and only hope is Jesus Messiah. I'm Ron Jones. Something good starts right now. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Hello and welcome to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm Brian Davis, thanks for tuning in. You know, the words to that famous hymn remind us of an infirmity far worse than being unable to see the world around us. It refers to a spiritual blindness. And as you'll see today, each of us has a role to play in our own deliverance. Online, you'll find us at somethinggoodradio.org, where you can hear any of Ron's messages on demand on your schedule. That's somethinggoodradio.org. From his teaching series, Believe the Miracles of Jesus, from the Gospel of John, Chapter 9, here's Ron with Part 2 of his Something Good Radio message, The Blind Man Miracle. Well, we live in a world that is full of uh, enormous pain and suffering and evil. And uh, for that reason, a lot of us take a deep breath every time we get up in the morning or maybe watch a a news story. Uh, Whether uh, you experience some kind of pain and suffering and difficulty recently or uh, might somewhere down around the corner, it touches every one of us at at some point in our life and in our experience. It's it's part of the human experience, we might say. And... um, it shouldn't surprise us because in one sense, you know, Jesus never gave His disciples uh, rose-colored glasses. He, he always spoke the truth to them. He always spoke reality to them. He said to them, in this world you will have tribulation. And uh, for that reason, every philosopher, every theologian, even everyday people like you and me and every generation, you know, we're asking the hard questions. We're trying to figure out Uh, and make sense of the injustices in our world, of all the pain, the suffering, uh, the things that happen in everyday life. And we ask those hard questions like, you know, why why does God allow pain and suffering and evil in this world? And if He is all-powerful and all-loving, why doesn't He do something about it? Some have concluded that He's either not all-powerful, but He is all-loving, or He is all-powerful but not all-loving, but He can't be both at the same time. And that's a fair assessment, that's a fair uh, way to wrestle with this question. And more often than not, when we wrestle with that question, you know, we go to the Old Testament book of Job. It's it's God's wisdom on pain, suffering, and and all those kinds of hard questions that we ask. And we remember the the story of Job. Uh, Job was a righteous man, 
Um, we get a little brief insight, a little peek behind the curtain, as it were, in that conversation between Job or between God and the devil about Job. Uh, Job loses everything. He loses his health. He loses his business. He loses his ten children in a tragic tornado. Almost lost his wife, who told him to curse God and die. I mean, Job's life was pathetic. And along come his three friends who look at Job and say, well, Job, there must, there must be some sin in your life, and they have this conversation going on for, I don't know, 30 or so chapters. And then finally, in chapter 38 of the book of Job, God breaks his silence. Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And then he goes on for three or four chapters and, and takes Job on sort of a safari through, you know, all of creation and uh, the world and the universe and all of that, flexing his cosmic muscles, as it were, and basically says to Job, Job, where were you when I created the universe? What, what do you know about anything, Job? But it still leaves us with that lingering question, why? Why allow pain and suffering and evil in this world? When you love us the way you do and when you're as powerful as you claim to be and are, John chapter 9 is another place that we go besides the book of Job where we ask these kinds of questions, and it isolates it into a single man's life. John 9 and verse 1 says that when Jesus passed by, He saw a man blind from birth. Circle that little phrase, from birth. He was, he was blind from birth. Some tragedies in this world that befall children before they ever come out of the womb or as soon as they come out of the womb are the, are the cruelest of, of any, aren't they? I mean, this man was born blind. That means he had never seen a blue sky or green grass or an ocean at sunset. He had never seen a rainbow or looked upon a meadow full of wild flowers. He, he had never looked into the face of his own parents who were smiling at him. And unlike someone who had lost his sight and lives off the memory of what he had once seen, uh, this man had no visual memory bank. Uh, from the day he was born, from the day he came out of his mother's womb, all he knew was darkness. And, and there's nothing more cruel in life than that. He hadn't made any choices. This man was born blind. And Jesus walks by him. He says he passed by, and he happened to kind of see him out of the corner of his eye, we might, we might say. And it sparked a question among the disciples. Hey, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, now what we're going to find is that the disciples had a very limited theology, a narrow theology. It was common in that day uh, to believe that somebody could sin even in their mother's womb, that's what the Pharisees and other religious leaders believe. So uh, the disciples are sort of in the vicinity, but still their understanding of how, who God is and how He operates in this world is still very narrow. They look at this blind man. They treat him like a, a, a case study rather than a real person. And some say they lack compassion even in the way they kind of talk around the man and about the man rather than sh showing compassion to him. But, Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? It's kind of like Job's friends. Job, you're, you're, all this pain and suffering and tragedy has befallen you. There must be some sin in your life somewhere. And what we're going to find is that Jesus uh, expands their theology and their understanding of who God is and how He operates in this world. Before we get to all that, let, let me just 
land upon a little, little time here that I'd like to call a, a brief theology of sin, sickness, and suffering. Because this is a, one of the questions of the ages, and we all wrestle with it, even as followers of Jesus Christ. So I, I just jotted down a few things. Again, a brief theology, doesn't cover everything, but gives us at least a few statements that we can hang our mental thoughts on this morning. Number one, all sickness and suffering is the result of what theologians call original sin. And what do I mean by original sin? I'm talking about the, the origin of going back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. How did all of this start? The Bible has an explanation for it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and created all of that in six days. And on the sixth day, He created man in His own image, and He took Adam and put him into a perfect garden paradise, but also gave him moral responsibility in there and said, you know, do this, but don't do this. And Well, you know the story. Adam sinned against God. And sin entered into the world at that point. It was like a virus attacking your computer. And you don't know why the computer isn't working the way it's supposed to be working, but something is not right. That's the fallen world in which we live. We inherited that sin nature from our spiritual and physical forefather named Adam. And, and theologians refer to that as original sin. The Bible says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. It wasn't supposed to be that way. But when sin entered into the world through the free moral choice of Adam and contaminated the bloodline, as it were, to where all of us inherit that propensity to rebel against God, we are born sinners we are born spiritually blind, as it were. And that introduces kind of the story behind the story here. This is a story about a man who was born blind and receives the physical healing to his eyes. And he see, but, but behind all of this is the larger metaphor of, of spiritual blindness. How tragic it is to be born into this world with perfect 20-20 vision, but you're spiritually blind. And that's the diagnosis of our, of our human condition. And the pain and the suffering and the sickness and all of that in this world, in, in some general way, can trace back to what we call original sin. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's the sobering diagnosis of the Bible regarding our human condition. Number two, some sickness and suffering is the result of personal sin. Why do I say that? Well, the disciples, again, had a very narrow view of theology, and their, their view was, well, there's only one explanation for this. Either this man sinned or his parents did. Jesus is going to broaden their understanding of how God may choose to operate in this world, and, and we would broaden our brief theology here to say, well, some sickness and suffering might be the result of personal sin. I think of David in the Old Testament. Remember David and Bathsheba? David fell into that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He hid his sin for about a year, kept it quiet, until Nathan the prophet came and exposed David. And then we find two psalms in the book of Psalms that are psalms of confession. One is Psalm chapter 51, where David confesses his sin. And uh, that's probably the most famous one. And then there's Psalm chapter 32, 
where uh, David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That year-long silence where David hid his sin had a physical toll on his body. Make no mistake about that. Dr. Ron Jones will be right back with the second half of today's message, The Blind Man Miracle. Remember, you can stop by somethinggoodradio.org anytime to find out more about the ministry or to order selected resources like the series you are hearing right now, Believe the Miracles of Jesus. The entire audio download of this nine-message series can be yours today for a gift to Something Good Radio. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Give online at somethinggoodradio.org. Mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456, or call our offices at 757-276-1099. And now here's Ron with the rest of today's Something Good Radio message, The Blind Man Miracle. Thanks so much for being here for today's Something Good Radio message, The Blind Man Miracle. And then we go into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's writing a letter to the, first, the, the Corinthian church, which was a really messed up church in the first century. There were divisions and factions and all kinds of uh, fighting going on in the church. And Paul wrote to address some of that and a lot of other questions that they had. And one of the questions had to do with the Lord's table. And, and he really took it on head on. And he says, some of, you, some of you are messing with this in a way that is unworthy of the Lord's table. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, Paul says that uh, because of this, many of you, quote, are weak and ill and some have died. Wow, that'll get your attention. There's no further commentary about that other than the fact that because of some who, who played with the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, it produced sickness and illness and some even died in the church at Corinth. So, those are just two examples where I say, not all, but some, some sickness and suffering is the result of personal sin. Just be careful not playing the role of Job's friends and saying, huh, there must be some sin in your life, and it's my job as the Holy Spirit to, to figure that out, you know? Job's friends made that mistake. If you're close enough to that person and you have knowledge of something that they're doing, firsthand knowledge, that's fine. But uh, thirdly, it's not always God's will to heal us. Again, a brief theology of sin, sickness, and suffering. Let me toss this one in. It's not always God's will to heal us in this life. Is it ultimately? Absolutely, because there's no sin, sickness, suffering, or death, or tears anywhere found in heaven. Is healing in the atonement of Jesus Christ to where, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we should expect and even demand our healing from God in this life? I wouldn't go that far. There are plenty of cases where Jesus didn't heal everybody He came in contact with. And even the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he talks about a thorn in the flesh that he had. We don't know exactly what that is, but it was a thorn in the flesh. And Paul says, I prayed three times times that God would remove that thorn in the flesh. And God didn't heal Paul. He just got these words, my grace is sufficient for you. God used that thorn, that infirmity, to create dependence in the Apostle Paul. Okay. Uh, there are two other occasions where Paul wrote letters and mentioned people who were ill or sick. Second Timothy chapter 4, a friend named Trophimus 
who was ill. No mention whether he was healed or got better or not. Uh, We don't know what to assume, though. And then Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2 was ill and near death, Paul says. And in this case, he goes on to say, and God was merciful to him and to me, lest sorrow upon sorrow uh, should be poured out upon me. Uh, The implication is that Epaphroditus got well again, was maybe healed by uh, the touch. So again, you have to be careful, narrowing your theology so much to say God will, God will and must always act this way. Well, not necessarily. When you read the pages of Scripture carefully, it's not always God's will to heal us. He may have another purpose in mind. It's ultimately His will as long as you allow for the extended timeline that goes into eternity. And then fourthly, God has a purpose in our pain. And that's where Jesus takes His disciples. Uh, Let's read on in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Do you have room in your theology to, to suggest that a man who was born blind was part of the sovereign plan and will of God? Does it make God smile? Does it make Him happy that there's all this pain and suffering? No, but He can factor into His larger plan all of this. And Jesus was saying to His disciples, and boy, this this was a, a, a PhD course in theology here where they're getting their narrow theology and their narrow understanding of who God is and how He must or should or does operate in this world blown to pieces when Jesus says, no, it's neither his parents nor him that has sinned. But this man was born blind for the express purpose of giving glory to God at this moment. And Jesus begins to heal him. That's, that's a pretty powerful thing. In other words, this man's blindness was not a cosmic accident. It was not a disaster. It was part of God's sovereign plan. And I love how Jesus turns the negative situation into a positive. And God can do that in any one of our lives, whatever pain or difficulty or tragedy we're facing. He can take that, that painful, difficult situation and turn it into a, a purposeful moment to glorify Himself and to, and to grow you and me in our, in our faith. Jesus goes on to say something uh, pretty amazing here in verses 4 and 5, but f- before we get there, all of this kind of reminds me of comments that two of my favorite authors have made over the years, uh, one of them being C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford educator and uh, intellectual, uh, a man who was once a a professed atheist but who later came to faith in Christ. He wrote a book called The Problem of Pain and uh, had his own personal journey and very uh, thoughtful observations about the subject. It was Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. Pain is His megaphone to arouse a deaf world. That's pretty good, isn't it? Because God uses pain and suffering yet to get our attention. Uh, I've grown, and perhaps you have too, more through times of adversity than I have through times of prosperity uh, because it drives us to a dependence upon Him. Someone else said, pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it tells us that, hey, rebel, hey, hey, wanderer from God or skeptic or whatever you might be, 
that, that pain is an attention grabber, is it not? Philip Yancey is also one of my favorite authors, and I recommend his book, uh, Where is God When It Hurts? And, and Yancey is never afraid to ask the hard questions and to um, think deeply about the subject of pain and suffering. He says, I have never read a poem extolling the virtues of pain, nor seen a statue erected in its honor, nor heard a hymn dedicated to it. Pain is usually defined as unpleasantness. He says, Christians don't really know how to interpret pain. If you pin them against the wall in a dark secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake. He really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers. Yancey goes on to say, I'm convinced that pain gets a bad press. Perhaps we should see statues, hymns, and poems to pain. Why do I think that? Because up close under a microscope, the pain network is seen in an entirely different light. It is perhaps the paragon of creative genius. And Yancey says that after examining from a medical point of view uh, the pain network in the body. By the way, did you know that leprosy is a condition where you don't feel pain anymore? The reason why lepers are often uh, dismembered and disfigured is because a leper can literally be walking down the road uh, barefoot, step on a nail, and not, not feel the pain. Ron, today you talked about the humility it takes to come to Christ, to admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Is it fair to say that our cultural landscape makes this even harder than it might be otherwise? Absolutely it is, Brian. Now, there's an irony here that I'll point out in just a minute, but first let me say that we have an entire generation of people here in America who have grown up to believe that many of their problems, not all but many, are, are someone else's fault. Individual responsibility has in large part been replaced by the blame game. And we see this at the individual level as well as the corporate level. Each political party blames the other for the problems of our nation. One race blames the other. Uh, one generation blames the one that came before, and on it goes. Now, th there's no question it's a growing problem, but we also have to keep this in mind. Uh, this is nothing new. It all started in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin, you know what they did? <laughs> Eve blamed Satan. Adam blamed Eve. Uh, but God, knowing the truth about all parties involved, handed out consequences to all three of them. God was saying in a manner of speaking uh, that each of you is responsible for your own choices. So this was the very first thing we did once we sinned. We, we, we passed the buck, and we're still doing it today here in the 21st century. At the end of the day, it takes humility to admit you're a sinner. Uh, does the culture some of us grew up in make that harder? Sure it does. But here's the irony I was talking about. You can't blame the culture for you not coming to faith in Jesus Christ, coming in all humility and admitting you need a Savior. Now, I don't want to sound harsh, Brian, and I don't, I don't want to sound judgmental. I, I don't want to condemn anyone. But I'm going to speak the truth plainly. If you're listening today and you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, this Jesus who loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins, and if you have not admitted that you are a sinner who needs a Savior, then you cannot be saved, and you cannot blame anyone else. God is beckoning you right this minute to come to Him and put your faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, and our Savior, and ask for His forgiveness so that in Him you can find life.
That's Dr. Ron Jones with some final thoughts on the role humility plays in our own salvation. Ron, we're about out of time, but before we leave for today, what can you tell us about where we're headed on tomorrow's broadcast? Yes, and thanks, Brian. You know, the miracles recorded in the Gospel of John are designed to point to the deity of Jesus, to demonstrate that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, uh, the only one through whom we can get to God the Father. And we can see Jesus working up to something the whole way through in these miracles. He's, he's turned water into wine. He's turned five loaves and two fish into a feast. He's walked on water and healed a blind man. So he's demonstrated his power over the laws of physics and other natural laws. But tomorrow we'll be talking about the way Jesus demonstrated his power over death. I'm speaking, of course, of the Lazarus miracle. And there's so much to this, this amazing story, even beyond the profound nature of the miracle itself. And we'll unpack this story over the course of the next couple of days. That's next time as Ron continues his series, Believe, The Miracles of Jesus. Join us then for Something Good. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for listening.